Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. We are facing an enemy that is not looking for compromises. All these non-democratic, authoritarian, totalitarian, dictatorial regimes, they need conflict, an ongoing conflict with the free world to justify their very existence. I recently got a chance to sit down with Garry Kasparov, perhaps the greatest chess player of all time, as well as a leader of Russia's democratic opposition to Vladimir Putin's regime. While the interview was for another Reuters show, The Exchange, I thought it might be interesting to War College listeners as well. While we talked a bit about Kasparov's new book, Winter is Coming, we mainly focused on the state of Russia as well as U.S. foreign policy. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. Hello, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm your host, Jason Fields. With me today is one of Russia's best-known opposition leaders and world chess champion, Garry Kasparov. Gary is the chairman of New York-based Human Rights Foundation, and he's the author of a new book, Winter is Coming. Gary, thank you for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. So the title of your book is Winter is Coming, and when you were thinking of the title, were you talking about power struggles uh, within Russia? Were you thinking of it in terms of, I mean, because right now, game, you know, winter is coming, all people think about Game of, game of, game Thrones. of Thrones. Yeah, no, naturally, it's a homage to the, to the, to the books and, and, and the TV show, uh, because the idea of this winter is coming uh, motto is that we, we have to be ready for dark and dangerous times ahead of us. Mm-hmm. And it's not just climate. It's kind of evil, and we can't be prepared and we can try to sort of to shorten this geopolitical winter, or it could last for much longer if we are not uh, ready. Um, and also, I, th- I, th- I thought it would be important to emphasize the fact that history is not linear, but it works in cycles. Mm-hmm. Somehow it's in the delayed debate with uh, Francis Fukuyama's best-selling book, The End of History, and I was very proud uh, and honored that he um, agreed to, to, to give a blurb to, to, to this book. Because at, the, at that time in 1992, we all, including myself, shared this optimism. The history was over, the liberal democracy has won, but you know, the evil you know, doesn't disappear. It can be buried under the rubbles of Berlin Wall, but eventually it sprouts out. Um, and now we are entering this season. So that's, it's very important to understand that you know, we have to learn how it worked in the past, you know, going back, you know, like in the chess game, analyzing the frameworks and the results of the Cold War that was won by the free world, and to see you know, what we can do now uh, to make sure that you know, the, the future will, will not be covered by you know, 
by uh, Dark Winter. <laughs> so, I mean, when we're talking about this, we're clearly talking about Vladimir Putin in a large part and uh, a sense of a new Cold War uh, of Russia once again being in opposition to the West. Yeah, I think one of the problems, you know, today that is people believed after the end of the Cold War and collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, that's, it, it's over and now we could have conflicts, you know, small conflicts, but no more existential threats, no mm -hmm. more sort of ideology that would be facing uh, the free world and, and threatening its very, its very existence. We do not have the same existential threat as the Soviet Union, naturally. Putin's rush today is a pale shadow economically, militarily, uh, and even politically, geopolitically, of the Soviet Ideologically, Union. too. Yeah, yeah, yes, there's no ideology that could attract hundreds and hundreds of millions of people because they understand Putin, you know, is, is a dictator who just, you know, wants uh, to stay in power, and, and there's no ideology behind it. It's, it's, it's a power game. But at the same time, we have other um, branches of evil. You have Iranian mullahs, you have ISIS, Al-Qaeda, North Korean dictators. And it's quite difficult to see what brings them together. So mm. w w why, why I believe that, that Putin and ISIS, they belong to the sort of other side of this world. So it says, this is invisible fence that divides us and them. Because we live in a world where we, we want progress, we, we want to compete in ideas, in innovations, in technologies. So it's about progress. They live in a world where such, such competition is deadly for them because they, they cannot justify why they want to stay in power forever. And all these non-democratic, authoritarian, totalitarian, dictatorial regimes, they need conflict, an ongoing conflict with the free world to justify the, their very existence. And that's why I believe Putin is the most dangerous enemy because he, because of Russian nukes, he can defy the free world, he can defy the United States, and he can violate all the treaties Russia signed. And Putin's defiance creates very fertilized ground for other rock, uh, um, non-democratic terrorist groups because they could see an opportunity. They could grab this opportunity because in these muddy waters, they all could hope to sort of score points by attacking the free world and especially the United States. Okay, so Putin acts almost as an aegis, protecting other forces is what you're saying. Directly or indirectly. Mm -hmm. So Asset directly, of course. <laughs> yes. So uh, does that mean that his influence, I mean, he's actually, and I, I don't mean to use him interchangeably for Russia, they're not the same thing, of course, uh, but do you see him actively reaching out beyond Russia's borders? I mean, beyond militarily, because, of course, there's a campaign in Syria, there was a campaign in Ukraine as well, but do you see it as more pervasive than that? Um, we don't know what Putin will do when he gets desperate. Uh, it's a very difficult situation, but oil, you know, is, is the oil price is sliding yeah. down. And if oil gets to 20 and uh, Russia, Putin's Russia is bankrupt, who knows what he will do? Because in the last few years, we could see that his response to economic challenges was always the same, you know, to create more tension outside of Russia. So foreign aggression becomes his only tool to pacify domestic protests. So the Putin's domestic propaganda is based on confrontation. It's like a cult of death. It's all about enemies. And uh, Putin is, good, is very good in creating enemies. And uh, I'm afraid that, you know, if he gets really desperate, you know, he could uh, um, have some kind of hybrid war uh, with Estonia and Latvia. It's, of mm -hmm. course, NATO. 
and crossing NATO borders could be a very different story. But so far, you know, Putin, uh, Putin saw very little um, determination, resolve from the free world and, of course, from the United States, uh, first of all, to impose policy of deterrence. And yeah, I, that's actually something that struck me in your book, is this lack of will towards confrontation from the West. You know, when someone's aggressive, as you see it, sometimes uh, at least the West backs off. Almost, mean, oh, almost always. Almost always, yes. You know, uh, yeah, I, I do understand the mentality of people in Europe and in this country after, uh, especially after wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, it, people, uh, people are weary of, of, of these endless wars and they do not understand why America should be engaged all over this uh, world trying to play a role of global policemen. Europe, of course, uh, believes in negotiations, in uh, compromises, in, in finding always the common ground. Uh, but the problem is that, you know, we are facing an, an enemy that is not looking for compromises. Mm -hmm. So dictators do not stop until they stop. They do not ask why, they ask why not. And, uh, you know, some enemies are worth having. Uh, and uh, that's why I always want to refer to the Cold War and mm -hmm. to the, the, mainly to U.S. Uh, presidents, but also to some European leaders, you know, uh, because at that time, from Harry Truman to uh, Ronald Reagan, the United States foreign policy was consistent. There were some, you know, changes, but within a range. And presidents, both Democrats and Republicans, they, they did understand, you know, the, the threat coming from the Soviet Union, from communism, and they were, they were working towards this common goal. And they were building institutions. So that's why it's very dangerous today to keep asking, why, what do we do today? Today, now, 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 now. Mm -hmm. it's, we should, you know, hollow breath, you know, look back, analyze the game, mistakes we made, and start thinking what we can do to have results a year from now, two years, five years from now, because mm -hmm. the strength of the free world was always to build institutions. Dictators and terrorists, they're very good in playing the tactical games, you know, just, mm -hmm. they can throw the pieces around the board, and they don't care about strategy because they have to survive today. Democracies should rely on institutions that will last over the tenure of president or prime minister. So actually, uh, of course, one of the criticisms of democracy going back literally thousands of years is that actually there is an inconsistency. Ancient historian Thucydides during the war between Athens and Sparta, one of the examples that he uses was that a ship was sent to kill everyone in a town on uh, the Turkish coast now, yes, as yes, we think yes. of it, right? And then everybody felt bad two days later. And then there was another speech and said, you know, we really shouldn't kill all of them and the women and children. They had to send another boat out to try to catch them. Uh, the moral being that democracies change their minds, there is an inconsistency, and yes, there's a constitution to try to guide, right? But people aren't necessarily, they don't always want the same things. Yes, uh, but you know, it's, uh, that's why democracy should rely sort of on long-term strategy. Because you know, it's the, in, in, in the short term, democracy can lose. Because dictator doesn't have to, you know, to ask uh, for second opinion. He doesn't care about press, you know, uh, he doesn't have a parliament to, to be advised, he, he doesn't have a constitutional court to constrain his actions. But long term, you know, the, the strong institutions, they provide a solid base to uh, win over non-democratic regimes. So in other words, going backwards, you thought and see the, the Soviet Union's collapse. Did you see that as it's again, it's not, it's not back. It's, it's, it's like, you know, it's another cycle. cycle, yes. But yes. you know, it's, it's many things are being repeated. And that's why it's very important to, to understand the nature of our enemy. It's this, it's, Putin was very clear from the very beginning 
of his rise, even before he became president in 1999 as yet a prime minister appointed by Boris Yeltsin, he met his former KGB colleagues in the headquarter in Lubyanka, KGB headquarter, and he said, once KGB, always KGB. That's, that's Putin. And the uh, first thing he did as a president of Russia, he restored Soviet anthem. That was a, and it's, you may call it a Freudian message. That's what I wanted to do if, if given the chance. And he kept repeating, repeated it many times. The collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. So you had all the signs on the wall, but you know, many people didn't want to read it. And some even now are trying to sort of find excuses. Though, again, Putin, we needed friends in the beginning of his presidency when he was weak. But after he consolidated power, he needs enemies. And so that's why the confrontation with Putin is inevitable as long as he stays in the office. There's a, another school of thought, and this may be a Western-only school of thought, which is that Russia wants a strong leader and that Putin is inevitable uh, in order to come out of the democratic mess. But you, you, you don't see it that way. Look, you know, I'm happy to discuss, you know, uh, theories, but... Uh, Unfortunately for, for the proponents of this theory, you know, it has been refuted profoundly, not just, you know, in one country, but around the world. So North Korea, South Korea, same people, you know, not even cousins, uh, but brothers and sisters. You have a gulag in the north, and you have, you know, vibrant economy, market economy, and stable democracy in the south. China and Taiwan, same people. So you have Taiwan, which is democracy, again, market economy, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, by the way, a rocky island with no resources. Mm -hmm. I can, of course, mention East Germany, West Germany, but the best one is actually Russia and Ukraine. Because this is, it's, it's some kind of a misunderstanding that it's a war between Ukrainians and Russians. As a matter of fact, most of Ukrainians, Ukrainian soldiers, fighting Putin's invading forces are ethnic Russians. And you, you basically looking at the same people, this is Russian people, living on one side of the border, say in Belgorod on the Russian side, or Kharkov in the Ukrainian side. There are 200 miles between them. There, were, there was no border in the Soviet Union. There was very technical and irrelevant border after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Basically, same people, same culture, same language. You know, and, uh, and, and they're fighting on, on, on opposite sides. So for me, it's, it's, it's not about ethnicity, it's not about race, it's not about religion. It's very much about conditions where people live uh, in. And Ukrainians, since 1994, lived in a different country because the first Ukrainian president, uh, Leonid Kravchuk, lost elections. Ukrainians experienced a peaceful transition of power. Unfortunately, it didn't happen in Russia. And, you know, we, we yet have to uh, sort of to move in this direction. And uh, I hope that, you know, Ukraine actually will, as the Kiev's Russia a thousand years ago, will lead the way for Russia into Europe. Okay, so that actually brings me to just a final question. What do you think might cause a positive change? Do you see anything out there on the horizon that might cause positive change? Look, I think the change is inevitable, but I would uh, not call it a positive change because uh, Russia will be experiencing a very turbulent period of transition. Uh, it will be violent. And for those who say, oh, because, you know, it's so dangerous, let's keep Putin in power, it's wrong assumption because the longer he stays in power, sort of more turmoil and violence we'll see in the future. Because every day he stays in Kremlin, you know, he keeps destroying whatever is left of civil society and, and horizontal ties between Russian citizens. What will ignite the ch this change and what will lead to demise of Putin's regime, it will be a geopolitical disaster. Economy is in terrible shape in Russia and the, the regime is, is, is staying afloat because they succeeded in convincing Russians that Putin had to sacrifice Russia Russian economy for some big geopolitical victories. 
I don't think it will last now. It's, I, I, I read every day, you know, everything that is published in Russia, and it seems to me that in 2016 already we could see, you know, some, some changes. And uh, um, whether it's this year, maybe it's next year, but soon, you know, when people realize that, you know, they have been forced to sacrifice everything for, for illusions, for, for uh, sort of criminal acts of a paranoid dictator, I think Russia will move in the new era, but again, it will be a very turbulent period, and I hope Russia can survive as, as a state in its current borders, though I'm, I'm, I would be so optimistic. Gary Kasparov, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a terrific conversation. It's great being here. Let's, let's talk next time when, when we'll see spring on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on War College. And I think often people, you know, they see the rise of Russia and think, oh, well, hell, this is a source of concern. But actually you need to think, well, you know, where the Russians are now is probably where the USA was in, I don't know, 1995. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.